You are now listening to The Big Data Beard. This is our podcast where we explore the trends, technology, and talented people making big data a big deal. Hey, this is Corey Benton from the Big Data Beard team, and we are recording at Dell Technologies World here in Las Vegas, and we're joined by Chad Sackatch. Chad, how you doing today, hey, buddy? Hey, guys. How you doing? I'm doing great. Well, for those of you who don't know you, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little about what you do? Uh, my name's Chad Sackatch. Um, I am uh, lame by the beard standards. <laughs> oh, it looks good. He's got so, the so scruff. You, you can't see this on the podcast, but this scruff here is like a solid six months of growth for me. Yeah. So uh, it's looking good. It's the streaming scruff, though. Yeah. I like it. It's uh, yeah. It's it's. I'm really working on it. Dig it. Uh, but uh, yeah, my name's Chad. Um, I am a nerd slash, uh, technologist slash, uh, leader inside uh the family of companies for a long time. So I I led all the. Uh, all the my fellow nerds and brothers and sisters inside uh, EMC and then Dell EMC. So anyone who was an SE, um, then uh, I was the GM of the Converge Platform and Solutions Division, which is focused on customers consuming technology rather than trying to build it. So CI, HCI, um, a lot of stuff around the solution stacks of the companies. Um, and then I most recently joined Pivotal, um, where. I lead our Kubernetes efforts together with my colleagues at VMware. Okay. So that's exactly the reason we wanted to have you on the show, because one of the things that we're seeing both from, you know, software providers to service providers to hardware companies, they're all looking at this Kubernetes thing as a deployment methodology of, uh, methodology of the future, even in, you know, big data and AI workloads. So help me, before we jump all the way into Kubernetes, I want to just get quick, like Pivotal as a company. Like yep. what's the general mission of that organization? So, so Pivotal... Pivotal is a fascinating part of Dell Tech. Um, each, each one of the companies are a little bit different in their own way. Pivotal's mission is very simple, which is to transform the way that customers and companies build software. Okay. That's it in a single sentence. Okay. Now, inevitably, that involves changing the way that people write applications. So Pivotal has existed for a long time. Um, you know, before Agile was a thing, they kind of invented agile, extreme programming, paired programming models, test-driven development, things that you know are are now just considered the way that you build great software. Mm -hmm. So they they have kind of led the charge on the methodology of how people build software. Okay. And over years of doing that, realized that a part of it wasn't just teaching them how to do it, but to give them the tools to do it. Okay. So uh you know, we we are the curator of a ton of open source projects, ultimately to build, help them build better platforms on which to build great software. So uh, I'll tell this in a, in a funny, maybe, story. Um, so Corey, you and I have known each other for some time. Yes, sir. Um, you know me, I'm, well, and for the listeners that don't, I'm a very happy social dude. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm the kind of person that you, when you sit down on an airplane, reaches over and says, hi, my name's Chad. What's your name? 
what are you doing? Where yeah. are you going? Yeah. You know, and you're like, oh my god, you're a social animal. And you're like, this is this is a five hour flight, and I'm trapped beside this headphones dude. right in. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> He's Excuse not that me, way. I've got to go yeah. uh, put my headphones in. Right. Um, so I I travel a lot, and I see customers all around the world, and I find myself in hotels very frequently. Um, I'm fascinated by human beings and cultures and languages. This is a lot of runway for a very basic story. <laughs> I love it. Which is, I've also been an infrastructure-centric person for the bulk of my career. Mm -hmm. um, you know, starting with infrastructure at the hardware layer, very passionate about uh, virtualization and VMware from 2006 before it was obvious that it was a thing through to 2010 where it started to become really obvious this is a big thing yep. uh, even till now. But I'm an infra person. Mm -hmm. So I'm at a hotel in Paris, and uh, it's empty. And uh, one thing I love about meeting people in hotels, um, this is, again, getting into that. This is not a uh, you know risque story, so people, you don't have to worry <laughs> Perfect, about it, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I see a guy, and he's working on his computer, and I go over, and I'm like, hey, uh, my name's Chad. What are you doing? What's your story? The reason I love doing that for people in hotels is by definition, they're there with a story. Mm -hmm. They're not at home, yeah. which means that they're going somewhere, doing something. Right. So there's always a story. Uh -huh. So I'm like, what's your story? And he's like, my name's Jack. Uh, I'm a PhD student. Uh, I'm working with a series of uh, enterprise companies building genomic uh, um, sequencing and analysis software. Yep. And I'm like, that's really cool. Yeah. And so he's kind, and he doesn't say, and Monsieur, vous êtes un jackass? Can I, <laughs> can I be left alone, please? Yeah. And, Which he, was nice and he very nicely said, well, what's your name, and what are you doing? Mm -hmm. And this was pre-Dell uh, acquisition, mm -hmm. and so I say, I work for EMC. And he goes, what does EMC do? And I say, we do storage. Uh, and he goes, you mean like where I store my furniture? <laughs> and then I go, no, I'm like not the like locker. That. And he's like, never heard of you. I try to explain like SANS and NFS. And, Did and you teach him Fiber Channel uh, right uh, there in was, the hotel? And got into a big bar fight over the pros and cons of Fiber Channel versus iSCSI. <laughs> no. Um, so I'm like, okay, how do I build a friend, uh, build a bridge with Jack? And I'm like, well, you know, uh, you're running software. Maybe you're less of the infrabent. Have you heard of VMware? And he goes, nope. And I'm like, hmm. oh, okay, this is getting trickier. Yeah. <laughs> right? And then I'm like, well, what are you programming? What framework? What language? And he goes, I'm using Spring Boot, and I love it. Yeah. And I go, great, we do that. Yeah, that's us. <laughs> we own <laughs> right? that. He's like, oh, that's awesome. I love it. <laughs> right. So Perfect. what Pivotal does when I was saying they curate open source mm -hmm. software platforms, the two parts of how we help people build great software is number one, this methodology, and the other one is the technology and the platform itself. So we uh, were primary contributors, kind of leading the Spring um, software ecosystem, which for those of you that don't know, it's the most widely used modern Java development framework that exists. Um, we uh, contribute to the OpenJDK. So if you hate Oracle um, and you want to get Java OpenJDK support from someone who's friendly and nice, yeah. we, we would do that too. Okay. Uh, Tomcat server, you know, is something that, you know, we're one of the primary contributors to, uh, Postgres. Yeah. So for your listeners that are like, Hey, I use Postgres, yeah. you know, we're one of the primary contributors to Postgres, uh, Apache geode, um, you know, an in-memory database. Um, and then of course, cloud foundry, 
um, which is a, a PaaS, a platform as a service that's been developed over years for people who want to build great 12-factor cloud-native apps on the cloud of their choice. Uh, but it's more than that too, like projects like Istio, Envoy, Service Meshes, uh, um, really cool work around Spinnaker and Concourse, so next generation CI, CD tools for how people you know, build and manage the builds of their software over time. Um, so Pivotal is a really interesting place. And obviously over the last couple of years, a big focus has been on how do we make Kubernetes great? Yeah, so help me understand and the listeners understand, why has Kubernetes just emerged in the market and been such, there's so much noise and I, I think there's oftentimes a bunch of confusion as to why this exists and what problems it solves. Yeah, so <laughs> um, warning, yeah, uh, dear listeners, uh, <laughs> I'm going to say some things that might, to some, sound negative. Okay. But I'm a Kubernetes cheerleader. In fact, Within Pivotal, I'm the chief cheerleader, but I'm also yeah. a pragmatist. Yep, right? that's good. Good qualities. So Kubernetes is definitively, declaratively, officially in peak hype cycle phase. Yep. Um, it is something which is every, you know, if you go to KubeCon, uh, you know, in APJ, in EMEA, or the Americas, it is a huge event. There is an ecosystem which has got hundreds of companies building software, tooling, resources around Kubernetes. And if you have a fear of missing out, FOMO, due to the, <laughs> what's this thing everybody's talking yeah, about? I got to do it. I got to do it. Yeah. Um, you know how like Hadoop went through a hype cycle? Totally. And like everything, you go through a hype cycle and then trough of disillusionment and all of that stuff. Uh, Kubernetes is in that hype cycle phase and probably starting to enter into the trough of disillusionment phase. Okay, <laughs> but then there's a next stage, and then there's the next stage, which is you're doing things that actually matter with it. There stage, you go. Yeah, exactly. Right? Okay. So first, what is this Kubernetes thing? Right. Right. Um, Kubernetes is a container cluster management and orchestration. It is. It has emerged as the standard de facto way that people manage containers and container runtimes mm -hmm. and deal with all of the fundamentals of uh, how do I deploy, how do I update, how do I lifecycle, you know. Mm -hmm. um, it is an open source project. It was born in 2015 um, within Google. Mm -hmm. It was Google's third... Uh, iteration of how do we do container resource scheduling inside Google for a broad variety of purposes it was preceded by something called Borg, which is the same kind of idea. Yeah. Um, what it does is no more and no less than be a standard way that you say via this API, I need to deploy uh, pods mm -hmm. containers on underlying infra mm -hmm. And it is declarative, so it's a declarative distributed system so that it says, hey, if my state is not what it's supposed to be, I will fix said state. Okay. Um, now, it uses every container runtime that you can think of. So, uh, you know, the most commonly deployed container runtime is Docker. Uh, but uh, Containerd uh, and many other container runtimes are supported by Kubernetes. Gotcha. Okay. 
So in um, 2015, you know, it version 1.0 got released to the wild. Um, there was an eco a formalization of the ecosystem. So underneath the Linux Foundation, they created the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, okay. which is basically the home for governance of Kubernetes plus all of the ecosystem around it. Okay. Uh, Dell EMC, VMware. Uh, uh, you know, Pivotal were all founding uh, members along with many others. Yep. And uh, in 2017, it started to show up in enterprises. It kind of started to settle. It left its enfant terrible phase <laughs> and, you know, moved into yeah. a kind of more stable, steady state. Exactly. Yep. Um, and uh, yeah, that's, that's, so that's where it's at. So then what's Pivotal's opinion on Kubernetes, this PKS thing you talk about? So, uh, Again, for dear listeners, I'm very long-winded, uh, as you can probably tell at this point. I right? dig it. The way I understand things is always to understand the like, okay, first principles. Go back to, you know, if yeah. you understand this, you understand this, you understand this, you understand It's progressive, yeah. So first things first, both VMware and Pivotal at the same time independently came to a conclusion that this Kubernetes thing was very important right. for us, our customers, for two wildly different reasons. Okay. Okay. The first one, and this highlights something interesting about Kubernetes, which is it can be viewed as an infra thing or as a dev thing. Okay. Right? Yep. Uh, and in the world of DevOps, those are kind of blurry uh, sure. uh, definitions. Yeah, the lines kind of get blurry. I get it. So VMware looked at it and said, you know, we are the kernel mode VM leader. Uh, that's kind of indisputable at this point. Right. We've helped enterprises around the world of every size and shape kind of grok the ideas of software-defined infra. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you build software-defined networking, compute, storage constructs? How do you do automation, mm -hmm. scheduling, yeah. high availability, restart, all that stuff? Mm -hmm. And um, they do a great job of it. Right. They said, well, what happens if today containers in the enterprise is a relatively small set of workloads, yep. but it's going to grow? And even if the bulk of containers run on kernel mode VMs, which they do for a variety of reasons, it's something that they have to lead. Otherwise, they're going to get disrupted by a transition in the market. Mm -hmm. So they were like, we must be the software-defined infrastructure leader. Yep. And this is a form of software-defined infra. And we need to, therefore, lead that charge. Got it. So we've got to contribute. We've got to build something. Yeah. Okay. It's like accept the reality it's coming. Yeah. We know it. There's no reason to embrace say it's not. and yeah. lead. At the same time, Pivotal looked at what we were doing and we had built something called Cloud Foundry. Mm -hmm. And Cloud Foundry existed before Docker, mm -hmm. before Kubernetes, and it is a higher order abstraction. Yep. So in other words, if you think of Kubernetes, it says, "Give me your container yep. and I will run it for you." <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. But Higher order abstractions are like, give me your code. Yeah. I'll do stuff with it. Mm -hmm. And part of what I do with it is I'll build a container and run and schedule it for right. you. Yep. Makes sense? Absolutely makes sense. Yeah. And so Cloud Foundry had to invent container schedulers and orchestration tools. Right. And because it didn't exist before. It didn't exist before. Yeah. Right. And we were like, you know, again, if you think about it back four years ago, everyone would have said, Docker is going to be the container standard. Check. That has proven to be true. Mm -hmm. But they also said Docker would therefore be the container scheduler leader. Yeah. So we thought Docker Swarm, Swarm was going to be and the all, thing. Yeah. And that hasn't really turned out to be the case. Yeah. Maybe it's going to be Mesos. Fast forward a year. <laughs> yeah. You know, maybe Mesos is going to be yeah. the 
thing. And, and there are workloads that Docker Swarm and Mesos are great for. For sure. But uh, increasingly what's become clear is that that market is start, starting to settle and kind of curate around Kubernetes as the standard. And we started to look at it and go, well, we have built a container thing that's embedded in the Cloud Foundry called Diego that's deep inside the bowels of Cloud Foundry. When someone does a Cloud Foundry CF push command, part of that is it builds the container and poops it out, <laughs> right? And okay. runs it on the internet. I just visualize what that looks like. I little like poop. <laughs> there right? you go. Well done. Uh, and, you know, the platform takes care of doing all that, but we're like, look, ultimately, if Kubernetes is now turned into the standard, right. we should really figure out how do we make developer experiences on Kubernetes awesome? Mm-hmm. Because Kubernetes is just the beginning of a developer platform, not the... It's an enabler, right? Right. And so we said, okay, we need to start to invest big time. But a part of it is we have to have a Kubernetes that is like ready to run the biggest enterprises in the world. Mm -hmm. This is not for your... uh, It's not lab stuff. It's not lab stuff. It needs to be proven. Because Cloud Foundry is running hundreds of thousands of containers at the biggest Fortune 500 enterprises on the planet. Yeah. If we're going to adapt and evolve Cloud Foundry to run on Kubernetes, we need to make it run on any Kubernetes, but we need to minimally be able to say there's one Kubernetes that rocks. Yeah. So if you want one that we are Getting fully behind, behind yeah. we're behind Kubernetes, but this is one that's enterprise ready. Okay. So both VMware and Pivotal came to those two independent conclusions at the same time. Interesting. Right? It was one of the first times where Michael Dell, as Dell Tech came in and said, hey, we can't have, you know, Pivotal running one way and VMware yeah. running the other way. Like, that's not cool. Yeah, for sure. And basically, the effort got kicked off as a joint project. So sometimes you'll hear PKS referred to as PKS. Sometimes you'll hear it referred to as VMware PKS. Yep. Those are the same things. They are, okay. You can download it from myvmware.com. Mm-hmm. You can download it from Pivotal Network. Okay. You can buy it from Dell EMC, Pivotal, VMware. Right. It's the same bits. Same engineering team, same effort. So fundamentally, though, containers, like if we think about applications, many in the big data space were tightly coupled applications that wanted to run without any abstraction. They wanted Linux, right? Give me bare metal servers, and we, whatever application, call it Hadoop, Spark, like pick your flavor, was very against it. Then many applications, we started thinking about virtualization because we were able to virtualize like data critical apps like SAP, Oracle, Mm -hmm. Microsoft workloads. Containerization, though, feels like it's coming in and going, maybe it's a bit of all those. Why is that? Why is it that con- like Kubernetes as a deployment methodology and as an orchestr- orchestrator, why is it now becoming in vogue for these, like, these data-intensive applications? So the first, the first reason is that it is an open-source project. Mm-hmm. Open-source so loves open-source, right? Love o- open-source <laughs> loves open-source, right? Yeah. Um, that's the first reason. Okay. The second reason is, is that the Google team that built it, mm-hmm. two of three of which are now VMware employees, Joe Bita and, and Craig McLucky, uh, the third co-founder is uh, over at Microsoft working on Azure Kubernetes services. Um, they were very smart at how do you create a distributed system mm-hmm. that is designed to follow the Unix principles of do as little as you can, but do it really well chain these things together so anyone who uses linux you know is familiar with that least you know least uh, complex design principle yep. um occam's razor right uh, yeah and uh and also how do you create a distributed system that can scale right so um containers are open mm-hmm. 
Kubernetes is open. Mm-hmm. Kubernetes is architected very well, so it's very, very flexible, but also very, very scalable. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it also has this thriving ecosystem around it, right? That's that's one Big couple reason. of reasons, okay. right? Um, the other thing is is that everybody is realizing that they've all been constructing their own resource schedulers independently, and it's like, man. This is a lot of work that if we could tap into it, yeah. that would be a good thing for us. Like if you talk right. to anybody in the data ecosystem mm-hmm. and you say, how excited are you about your customers loving Kafka or loving Postgres or loving Mongo or whatever? They're, they're like, I'm really excited about that. And if you said, how excited are you about all of the work that goes into making it run right? Yeah. And they're like, oh, hey, if I could... Make that Move just that work. Yeah, that would exactly. be awesome. Exactly. So all of them have built over the years their own software into their own stacks because they're all distributed systems unto themselves right. that take care of like, how do you instantiate an instance? How do you take care of distributed system fault, restart? Yeah. Um, and increasingly, they're all scratching their head going like, hey, can we tap into something to do this? Right. Okay. So as an example... Um, Dell EMC needed to create a next generation object store Mm -hmm. and an object store and a data service are kind of kissing cousins, (laughs) right? Um, You know, they persist information, right? right? In in their distributed systems. And when ECS was born, we were like, damn it, we need to have something that will deploy the ECS components, instances, think about cluster distributed system health. And we looked around and we said, we need one. We used Mesos, right? As ECS continues to evolve, ECS has now said, hey, look, ideally, we'd love to have our ECS software and say, as long as you have a Kubernetes that works, Mm -hmm. our ECS will work on that. Right. Okay. Interesting. Makes sense? Absolutely. Now, here's the the warning, negative, you know, comments. Okay. So, coming into this from a legacy infra worldview and a VMware worldview... The thing I would say is, is that this thing is moving at the speed of light. Mm-hmm. It's very still immature yeah. in many ways, right? So, um, for example, um, Kubernetes gets released every three, uh, three months, um, and every few every release is pretty materially different. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, in the most recent release, uh, one point fourteen. There's a whole new standardized way for how do you deal with persistence and storage, which, as you'd imagine, for data platforms is kind of important. Kind of important, right? (laughs) Yeah. So there's that. So that's changed. That's kind of a big deal. Um, Then there's whole new ways of doing networking that appear. Um, Kubernetes has built a whole slew of ways of how do you do cluster management, this cluster API project, all brand new, hot off the presses. And then the data ecosystem, Mongo and all the others, all are just starting to release what are called their Kubernetes operators, which are like, here's how you make this work on this. Mm -hmm. Uh, Confluent did a blog post on how do you get Confluent to work properly on PKS? Here's the operator. Here's how it works. All that stuff is like hot off the presses. There's still sharp edges. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's kind of like juggling flaming chainsaws. Yeah. Is it possible? Yes. Is it time to get into juggling flaming chainsaws? I don't know. 
how do you see this compare with the emergence virtualization you know, over a decade ago? Um, so uh, I'm dating myself here, but I remember the first time I used ESX 2.0. Um, and the first time I also remember the first time I ever saw a vMotion occur. Mm-hmm. And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> this is freaking awesome. Yeah, exactly. Face melting, right? Face melting. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I was thinking back and I'm like, we are exactly where, for the listeners who are from that universe, um, of ESX 3.0 and vCenter 2.0. Yeah. Right? It's just starting it's to get. just starting to like kind of get there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, again, everyone who was part of that ecosystem, we crossed a Rubicon when we got to vSphere 4.0. vSphere 4.0 was like the first release where it was like, hey, this thing's really ready for a prime time. Yeah. But some people hear that and they're like, well, then I'm not touching this thing with a 10-foot pole. Right. That would be the wrong conclusion. And, and by the way, it's a good question. The history is very instructive. Even though vSphere 4.0, 4.5 were kind of the place where enterprises got a ton of value for a broad set of workloads with mm-hmm. vSphere, yeah. that was in 2010. Right. If you didn't do anything with VMware until 2010, you were kind of like late to the party. <laughs> mm-hmm, right? yeah. There were truckloads of workloads where you could have been using it all the way back in 2007, 2006. For sure. And you could have saved a lot of money. Mm-hmm. You could have learned a lot of things. You would have found all sorts of interesting use cases. But even in that time, there were people like, well, if it doesn't do this, it's a total waste. No, those people were wrong. Yeah. Right? So today you find people like, well, if Kubernetes doesn't have this security model, then it's useless. Well, don't be that guy or gal. (laughs) Yeah, don't be wrong. Don't be wrong. Yeah, history will prove you wrong again. So when you think about containers and and the future, I, I wonder... Do you believe that the likelihood for Kubernetes to get into this like place where we're like actually delivering, do you think that gets better because there's so many more participants in the project by people like, you know, software companies yeah. obfuscating their engagement in the building and of all these cluster systems? There was a great tweet again by Joe Beta where he basically said like, hey, we've got to make this thing really boring. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and and uh, what I've noticed about ecosystems is that um, in that hype cycle, like, again, it's so funny, you know, the people who went to VMworld in 2006 to 2010 mm-hmm. were the same people who stopped going in 2010 because they're like, Ugh, this is yeah. getting boring. Yeah. <laughs> And then they were over it. And then they're like, I'm going to OpenStack summits. Yeah. Right. And yeah. then that was like 2010 to 2012, 13. Mm-hmm. And then at 2013, they're like, this is so boring. I'm going to DockerCon. Yeah. And then MesosCon and yeah. now KubeCon. Right. Yeah. And then what happens is that when those people leave the party, mm-hmm. a wave of pragmatists like come in and some people look at it and go, oh, that means it's. No, that that means it's like now getting into the point of, yeah, you know, you've made it so simple to use and adopt, and, and, and it's moving into the prime time, which people, some people, just don't want to do. Yeah, right. <laughs> they like to be in the cool crowd. So on the uh, edge, you know, what we're seeing now is that between us, Google, yeah. a Red Hat, um, and many, mm-hmm. um, we're determined to make this boring. Okay. And awesome in its boringness, yeah. which means that people can then do things with it that are For powerful. Sure. 
So I'm curious, you said, you know, speaking of like things that are in their hype cycle, I'm curious just based on your spending time with customers, mm -hmm. lots of technologists, you got a good kind of view of the world. What's your take on like artificial intelligence in the enterprise today? Wait, AI is in the hype cycle? No, that's not true at all, man. Marketing, most dangerous people no in the world. No one says anything about AI. That's right. You know, it's uh, something can be in the hype cycle and yet still be really important. So um, I think part of the problem is terminology is frustrating, mm -hmm. right? So AI makes people think Terminator, Skynet, exactly. uh, that sort of thing. We're toast. And when you describe what AI is today, mm -hmm. and machine learning and AI are blurry lines, mm -hmm. um, you know, where you're basically like, look, it's a mathematical model that we iteratively churn through using a whole slew of data mm -hmm. and iterate on that model until the model gets to the point where we can highly predictively take a given set of input, apply it against the weighted model, and predict an outcome. Yeah. People are like, is that how it works? And it's like, yeah, yeah that's how it works. Yeah. Um, they're like, that sounds like pretty basic math. Yeah. And hyper-trivialized. Clearly, yeah. It, I get it is basic math. Absolutely. Right? The math, by the way, is extremely complicated. But, <laughs> but, PhD but basic that. is relative. <laughs> but but the core idea is basic. Yeah, right? Yeah. Um, the thing that you know is fascinating to me as a human is it highlights how bad humans are at really understanding the power of iteration. Mm -hmm. This is true, by the way, in software development and in AI and machine learning, yeah. um, where high degrees of iteration can produce these machine learning and AI systems, which are really, really cool. Yeah. And so, look, um, I drive a Tesla. I'm pissed that I have a Gen 1 tesla yeah. that, that that you know uh won't get fully autonomous driving yeah. but even with our, my gen one system right i'm delighted to have a little bit of the load taken off me when i put it into autopilot yeah. um i hate stupid ivrs <laughs> okay right yeah but i love working with a chat bot okay isn't that weird like that, i guess it is uh, a little strange but chat bots work yeah Customers prefer a chatbot, strangely, than talking to a human. Yeah, um, I think it's because we kind of like the distance and absolutely. That's whatever. why people it goes like, back to the headphones being in, right? Totally, people, <laughs> you're right. I think it goes to the same thing though. Like this, like we, the the one of the they they argue that one of the truest views into society what they're thinking is in their Google searches because yep. there's that layer of abstraction between the person and like another person, another person. exactly so you can kind of so hide just, your weirdness. yeah exactly <laughs> um, so uh, you know like ai and machine learning is everywhere yeah. we we spent a fair amount of time working with uh the car manufacturers in that ecosystem about autonomous driving systems mm -hmm. there's a lot of intersection of kubernetes and those workloads for sure um there is a ton of just fascinating stuff going on about ai and ml and and uh, again, Kubernetes is kind of like a little bit of a how can you orchestrate said workload. Mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of like just a, it's less interesting than the math, the models. For sure. Uh, but if it enables somebody to actually go out and do those things, that's kind of interesting. But one thing you hit on there that I think is really fundamentally interesting, especially for like where you, the world you live in, the why I think so many folks in the data world need to be paying attention is there is like, if you build a model, you're going to have to deploy it. 
and you deploy models in software. Yes. Right? So if you're going to be successful with data, AI, this stuff, you got to have a software development capability. Is that, do you agree? Or totally. Just, okay. Totally. And, and one thing that is interesting about Kubernetes is it comes in many shot sizes and shapes, right? So at the one end, you've got you know the Kubernetes and the hyperscale clouds. On the other hand, you've got Minikube and Canonical, for example, put out something that basically runs, it's like a 200 meg download and runs on a standalone Linux machine, mm-hmm. right? Uh, Rancher's got a similar small footprint deployment thing. So in many cases, people are like, hey, it's pretty cool that I could take uh, a container workload that runs stuff mm-hmm. and I could equally run it into a hyperscale cloud where I could say auto scale to yep. the moon and beyond, yeah. and I could also package it into something that could be deployed on a small footprint. Right. We see a lot of interest, by the way, in retail. Mm-hmm. So a lot of customers that, um, uh, you know, like a Starbucks and, uh, you know, Walmarts and uh, Nordstrom's um, that are going, hey, how do I build a small footprint thing to deploy FedEx ground? They're like, I need to have a common software deployment model Mm -hmm. in hundreds and thousands of FedEx ground locations. But my software developers are going to develop it in data centers or in the public clouds. And Kubernetes being a standard enables that sort of portability. For sure. Now, again, hype cycle. That sentence is hype cycle. This is the practical reality. Even Kubernetes instances that are all conformant, meaning that you can run a test against it and say it conforms with all of the Kubernetes APIs, Mm They're wildly different still uh, when it comes to observability, tooling, um, admission controllers, all sorts of stuff like that. And uh, that dream of portability is something that's very important to us. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we're very determined to make our contributions to upstream Kubernetes, make sure that we're aligned, make sure that we keep it pure. Um, But at the same time, you know, warning, promise, vendor promises of portability Mm -hmm. are often... Yeah. Overblown. <laughs> exactly. So Pivotal's had products in the past that focus on data science, and you guys contribute a lot in the open source community for you know projects for data science. Just curious, what, what is Pivotal's view on just data analytics, big data in general, and how you are helping customers solve their data challenges? So, uh, you know, first things first, this is now a personal comment, not a Pivotal comment. Um. One thing that has always pissed me off about our ecosystem is the overweight influence that our friend Larry Ellison has in our industry. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not that Oracle doesn't make good stuff. No. Uh, they do. No. Um, I've just yet to I've yet to find a customer anywhere in any of my travels, regardless of company, vertical, language, culture, that says the following sentence: "I love Oracle." <laughs> they spend a lot of money with them, but they, they don't. They're like, I don't feel loved. I don't feel like they're out to help me, and yet I'm spending a truckload of money with them. For sure. So the first thing in the world of data is we believe that relational open source databases are ready, willing, and able to save people from blowing their money with Oracle. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Right? And based on? Postgres. So Postgres, MySQL mm-hmm. um, are are there, in my humble opinion, 
are ready to run the majority of workloads that are relational databases that run yeah, on Oracle today. For sure. The fact that we haven't gone more open source in that area is stunning. I, I don't actually understand the why behind it. Uh, you don't think it's the proprietary lock-in for like the application stack owning the underlying yeah, infra stack? Because so, so database I, is kind of infra. I, I buy that, and yeah. data has gravity, for sure. which I'm sure you've talked about on the podcast. Yeah. It's difficult to move. It's difficult to get off and change and all that stuff. But there comes a certain point where just sheer evilness and anger yeah. normally would overcome that inertia. Right. Right. We think the moment is now to throw off the shackles of our oppressor. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well said. And and uh, and say, hey, look, we're not. We know we're never going to displace Oracle in the market as a whole. But hey, reach out to us. Yeah. And. We think that with a fraction of your Oracle spend, like 10%, we could reduce your dependence on Oracle by 30 to 40 to 50% using open source relational databases. Postgres, MySQL. Okay. That's big. That's part one. Okay. Part two is uh, we've realized that if relational data is like the majority of what's in the enterprise... Mm -hmm. The other big majority is data warehouses. Mm-hmm. And uh, data warehousing has gone through multiple like gyrations and evolutions. And am I going to use you know, Hadoop as my big data warehouse? Mm-hmm. Is that, like, how's that going to work out? Teradata. Um, and you know, what's interesting is we were kind of ahead of our time with Greenplum, which was a distributed uh, MPP, massively parallel processing data warehouse mm-hmm. that worked ridiculously well. And a couple of years back, we basically went and we open sourced the whole thing and built it around a distributed, massively parallel uh, version of Postgres. Mm-hmm. Um, we think that that is an awesome way to build an incredibly performant OSS-based data warehouse. Yep. And you can get it as software. You get it as software that runs on Kubernetes. Mm-hmm. Um or you can get it as a hardened appliance. So there's a thing called a Greenplum building block, mm-hmm. which is Greenplum on PowerEdge servers that is all of the goodness of appliances without their rigidity. So there's a broad set of x86 server configurations, and it's kind of the modular version of an appliance. So you can start small, grow. It's pretty awesome. Okay. Uh, we continue to think that every microservice needs a cache. So part of the data world and ecosystem is caching. And uh, we do something where Geode, uh, which is the open source uh, you know, branch of Gemfire and something called Pivotal Cloud Cache, you know, is, a, is a core part of how people build modern applications because every modern app has something fronting the relational database. Um, mm-hmm. And that's an important part of the ecosystem. Now... There's a ton more that we do, but that's where we stop organically. What we do with everyone else is we work with them furiously, whether it's Mongo, Confluent, a ton of uh, intersection between modern microservice design and event frameworks. So we see this combo of modern app and and Kafka all the time. And so working with Confluent Mm -hmm. to make Confluent awesome on Kubernetes yep. 
and deeply integrated into spring yeah. is something that we're doing as well. There's a huge long list. It's yeah. fascinating stuff. Yeah, absolutely, it is. Well, Chad, it's been fun to, to catch up with you to hear what Pivotal's doing to solve data problems, but also how Pivotal's helping drive forward this exciting area of abstraction and containerization that I think is something everybody needs to pay attention to. It sounds like the standard going forward. It is the standard going forward. ton of also interesting stuff going on with us in NVIDIA, yeah. but like how do you take the TensorFlow libraries, make them work well in our Kubernetes and others? Great yeah. stuff. Awesome. I love it. Accelerator technology is near and dear to our hearts. Totally get that. So I do want to shift gears here. We're, uh, we're going to have a little fun. Uh, every time we have a guest on, we try to go through our rapid fire questions. We've learned a lot from our guests about big data, but now it's time to get a bit personal. In a segment we like to call Rapid Fire. So Chad, what is the latest book that you read that you would recommend to your listeners? Latest book that I read. Um, so there's a whole bunch of like reading about, you know, Kubernetes deep dives and uh, refreshers on uh, on development stacks. Mm -hmm. Those I wouldn't, you know. I'm, I'm just gonna. Like, yeah. Those are those are fun professional reading. Yeah. Um, Homo Sapiens was a great book. Agreed. Um, and uh, Do a Sex, uh, which was the follow-on. Um, uh, I think I'm getting that right. Was also good, but not as good as Homo Sapiens. Was the Homo Deus is that Homo, what it was? Homo Deus. Is that, right. Yeah, that's, we heard Homo that. Deus. I just heard about that. One. It, it, it. So. It didn't quite capture the magic of Homo sapiens, but right. Homo sapiens really dug that one. Yeah, it was uh, wild. Uh, old classics still are incredibly useful. So Tribe is a one one of my favorites, um, and Tribes is is so hits some of the fundamentals of like leadership and and modern. Yeah. Um, how do you create cultures that influential that, leadership? In, influential right? leadership. Yeah. Um, there's, uh, you know, I'm a big, big uh, believer in regular reading of The Economist. Yeah. So this is going to sound a little dry, right? <laughs> okay. But one thing that I, I think, we live in a big, wonderful world. Mm -hmm. The media diet that we normally watch, read, and consume mm -hmm. is not highly reflective of the world. Right. Right, I totally agree with uh, that. <laughs> I I strongly encourage anyone to get a passport if you don't have one, mm -hmm. and travel and immerse yourself in different cultures and languages and places in the world. And you realize the differences that exist are a wonderful feature, not a bug. Absolutely, I absolutely agree with you. The Economist, while a little bit center right, typically is a very balanced uh, international worldview. Yeah. And I would highly recommend it for people to want to understand how the world works. Very good. Like it. All right. So we are at Dell Tech World. You've been on stages in many conferences in your career. Uh, in today's world, what is the song? If you had to go on stage today, tomorrow, whenever, what's that song that you would want to have played? Uh, Fallout Boy uh, uh, Centuries. Uh, I'm a big like Fallout it. Boy fan. Good choice. Um, and uh, they played live at one. Uh, they did at one. Yeah, they sure uh, did. That was so cool. And so, <laughs> sorry, speed round bug. <laughs> so, so basically, my wife and I uh, were here. I brought my wife first time, last time to one of these big conferences, and we had no idea it was going to be Fall Out Boy. We're super fans, yeah. super fans. We've seen them live like 
eight times. That's awesome. Right? Yeah. And so we're like, oh my God, I'm going to go get to see the band. Yeah. And so like we're getting ready to go backstage, meet the band. Oh, right? that's super and, cool. And we're like really excited. I'm playing in my head. I'm going to say, you know, we love you. You know, big fan of your latest album. We saw you live in Montreal and Toronto. And, uh, you know, just really happy to meet you. Right. And I'm like playing in my head, like, be cool, Chad, be cool, man, be <laughs> cool, cool huh, be cool. <laughs> you know? yeah. so we show up and they're like, it's a conga line, like a wedding reception, right? And so we shake their hands and I'm like, hi, I'm Chad, Toronto, Montreal, fall point. <laughs> and they were like, this guy. Like, What's he on? <laughs> What's Get he on? him away from me. <laughs> That's totally like that. blew it. So oh, that's, that's funny. That's okay. You fangirled for your big for your big fan. <laughs> yeah. I get it. It's worth it. All right. So, what piece of technology is currently making your life worse? Uh, Kubernetes. <laughs> <laughs> Just gonna throw it out there. Hard no. stop. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Uh, I. I uh, yeah, it's it, like I love it, and there's still so much work that we're doing to make it better. Um, I just I hate Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, just hate it viscerally and it's kind of inescapable um, and you know just it's tough it's, yeah. e- it's weird how it's woven itself into our lives yeah alright so what is your biggest personal money pit right now <laughs> Kubernetes his <laughs> <laughs> home no so so uh, money pit for me is a couple things so always my home lab so mm-hmm. uh, i love technology i love consuming it i love you know playing around with it um so there's you know constantly uh, a flow of new tech into the house my wife once said that ebay saved our marriage <laughs> because i was able to at least recoup some of the value say it's not the acquisition side that she's happy about <laughs> no it's it's the oh my god all this stuff is piling up we got to get rid of it right? yeah um, I bought a new e-bike that I'm really excited about. Okay, so that that's pretty cool. E-bike, um, that's a good one. What kind of e-bike did you get? It's uh, it's uh, uh what's it called? Is it like an e-bike? Like it's a pedal specialized. Bike? It's okay. a specialized Vado Five. Oh, okay. Um, because I, you know, I live in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Pivotal is filled with millennial hipsters. Yep. As a 45 year old, I'm like two decades older than everybody else in the office. Yep. And they make me feel old, and, and not not because they're mean. Like no. you literally just look around and go, "Man, just an I'm old." Assessment. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a frank assessment. So yeah. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to ride my bike into work, but I'm kind of lazy. So the idea of a uh, e-assisted yeah. bike it's brilliant. Uh, is brilliant. <laughs> I like, dig this that. Is great. I like that a lot. Uh, what are you binging on any shows right now? Oh my god! So yes, Game of Thrones last night. So yeah. epic. Good. So good. No spoilers. So, no spoilers. No spoilers. No. Yeah. Although, like, by the time you hear this, if you haven't seen it, something's yeah, wrong with exactly. you. Like, the internet will have ruined it for you. <laughs> so I've been humming the, the the opening sequence the yeah. entire day. It, it literally makes my uh, I salivated. Yeah. It's a Pavlovian reflex. <laughs> like it's not good. But beyond that, um, so really dug the Umbrella Academy on Netflix. Yeah, I'm in the I'm in the middle of that right now. So I won't give you any yeah. spoilers. Yeah. It, it's it's I think really cool. Okay. Um, and a pretty faithful, you know, translation of the original comic book, which was great. Um, and then the other one on Netflix that I just binge watched and love was Russian Doll. It's the second Have time I've heard that? this one. So if you haven't watched it, yeah, um, highly recommended. Um, it's not for everybody, but yeah, but very awesome. good. Okay. And then lastly, where's the next interesting place that you're going? Uh, so 
always love going to visit Europe. Next week, I'm in New York. And how can you not love the Big Apple? That's right, buddy. Um, I, I, but just to be clear, this is a trick question because <laughs> for me, the answer is anywhere. Yeah. I, like I love being at home with my family. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife, my two wonderful daughters are the center of my universe. Uh, I love going to Miami Beach and parting my brains out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love going to New York and seeping in the Big Apple. Mm-hmm. I love going to France. French is my favorite language in the world. I love Rome. I love Beijing. I love Sydney. I love, you know, so uh, I do, you know, almost 500,000 miles a year on one airline. Um, Are you serious? Yeah. Which airline? Air Canada. Air Canada. So like all of the other ones, like periodically I travel on, but since Toronto is home base. For sure. It's easy. You know, like all things Canadian, it's socialized, nationalized. There's really one airline. (laughs) That's right. Right. That's very Canadian. So it's very, very friendly and your choice is zero. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, so yeah, I, I love uh, traveling all over the place. Uh, One thing I'm looking forward to is, uh, going to uh, Cape Canaveral next time. So, oh, I guess see the launch. Well, we do that. We do this thing that you know the Dell EMC team has got this like heroes mm-hmm. program, and right. they bring together SEs from our partners and whatnot. And the guy who leads it has like this back door to the to one of the guys who runs the infrastructure for NASA. Really, and they hold it at that location. And I'm such a space nut. Yeah that I'm trying desperately to coordinate it with either uh, SpaceX launch yeah. or the new NASA SLS launch. Ooh, that'd be and, cool. And I've indoctrinated my children. So Good. I'm, I'm trying to coordinate that, but it's tricky. That's awesome. Well, I'm glad you're a NASA fan, even though... Your Canadian dollars aren't helping the program. <laughs> <laughs> we, we've got this Canadian space agency, yeah, and we are have one? so cute. Oh, <laughs> that's awesome. Now, by the way, like Chris Hatfield, yeah. you know, an amazing astronaut, Canadian. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, right? Okay, that's fair. Uh, we've actually had, you know, a whole bunch of Canadian astronauts over the years, so it's yeah. actually a really good program. <laughs> okay. Uh, we, we, we provide those, those arms. Yeah. Uh, you know, so the Canada arm one and two. That, oh, okay. Right? That was a, I do have a good still cute though. We, it's, we, it's just, it is, it is classically Canadian. Like, Hey, we can't get there, but we're happy to help. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Chad, it has been super fun to chat with you about all things pivotal. What's happening in the world of Kubernetes and why it matters and why people need to be paying attention to it today. And frankly, it's just always fun to hang out with you, buddy. It's my pleasure. Thanks for being on. Thank you guys. Cool. Thanks for listening to the Big Data Beard Podcast. The music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. Check him out on iTunes or Spotify.